Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg on the uh, first edition of the Remnant podcast. Since the government shutdown ended, it's still pretty bleak around here in the in the bowels of the American Enterprise Institute. Lots of dead interns strewn about, the carcasses of various rats and whatnot still all over the place that they had to eat. No but towels in the gym. There are no towels in the gym, and it just it's it is like the siege of Leningrad in here, or Stalingrad, I should say. Well, Leningrad was pretty bad, too. It was. It was. It was. That's a good point. So we're doing another one, which we call internally of a potpourri show, but I think that's a little too flouncy, so we're going to come up with some other name for it eventually. Um, what, what it basically means is we have no guests other than us. And by us, I mean, some people are confused about this. Uh, Jack Butler, my M-U-N-S-S slash gimp. And Michael Pratt of the American Enterprise Institute, who is also the host of the Filler Words podcast. <laughs> and you guys get a lot of crap on Twitter, for, particularly from guys that like of the weekly substandard fans and, and, and other lower phylums of human beings who um, say that you're too much of, a, of, a, of yes men and lick spittles and whatnot. Are you no. Are you wow. getting that in your own life? Are wow. You, are, you, uh, uh, are you getting crap for being too deferential to me on my podcast? Well, I'll just Careful say, how you answer. Yeah, I'll just say this. I at least have an excuse because I'm married. Uh-huh. So, you know, saying yes, it's, it's a You're learn, used to following practice. orders. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. That's, that's fair. Although, let's not go too far with the analogy that I'm your <laughs> wife. Jack, do you have problems with – the thing is, you get more grief off this podcast for me than you do on this podcast. Uh, look, I – I'm not a slave. I am a free man. I am Spartacus. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah, it's, it's always a great sign that you're your own man when you have to tell people you're not a slave. But um, <laughs> Yeah, the I am not phrasing is always super compelling. And, yeah. And, sort of like from um, Showgirls where, she, where the chick screams, I'm not a whore! <laughs> anyway. Glad that the world knows you've seen Showgirls now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's even good on mute. Um, which uh, I thought you might actually be better on mute. That could be a slogan for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I was actually thinking that we should do like an all-mime episode of the podcast, a very sort of – what's that experimental musician, composer guy, um, Jonathan Glass? John Gage, who did 433. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, and which I had to listen to a lot of his stuff in college and still don't like it. Um, but since you guys are here, um, I figured we could do some mime like Jack could do his best impersonation of – like Louis C.K. interviewing a young woman, um, you know, and then segue to like man walking in the rain or whatever. Anyway, oh and- wait, someone saw a, a listener. We we before this podcast, we asked for uh, listeners to submit questions and requests, and one listener by the name of Prudence said she would like to hear your mime with an umbrella caught in a windstorm. Okay, hold on one second. Nailed it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, and uh, well, it's as good as episode eleven. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, and since you guys are 
millennials. You guys, so Michael, you're 28, correct? Yeah, 28. All right. And Jack, you're 22, 24. Sure. I'm at, the, I'm at the point in my life where I don't really, my, I have felt the same way about my age since I turned 21. I'm just sort of vaguely 20 something. Yeah. That, well, that happens. It's, it's funny. When I first moved to Washington, I had a roommate who was 28 and I was uh, 21, 22, something like that. And he was the first person to point out to me that, you know, we all know that like in college and in high school, until you get out of college, the bookmarks in your life are really clear. Like mm-hmm. the difference between a 10th grader and a 9th grader is huge to a 10th grader and a 9th grader, right? Same thing between a freshman in college, a sophomore in college, all that kind of stuff. And you always have these giant punctuation marks of summertime. And then when you get out of college and you get a real job, all of that goes away really suddenly. And anyway, so he was like, he said, you know, all my life until I turned 21, I can tell you how old I was when something happened to me or when something important happened to me. And then the second I hit my 20s and got out of college, it's all a blur. I couldn't tell you if I was 24 or 23 or 27 when something happens. And, like, I can't for the life of me tell you, like, how old I was when various things happened to me in my 30s or 40s or, like, this morning. And it's just – it's weird how the fluidity of time thing goes. But since you guys are millennials, I did bring you guys each a bag of Tide Pods. Um, yeah. Can I, can I say something? last night. <laughs> can I say something about that, that meme – I, I resent that you even brought that up because this is – I'm very – certain memes I become very uh, contrarianly opposed to because I don't even like people joking about this. I'm sad that it's become a meme at all. It's just a ridiculous thing and like a college student in Utah actually ate one and had to call poison control and went to the hospital. I just – I resent this meme. I'm anti-Tide Pod meme, anti-Tide Pod food. I'll use them for laundry but nothing else. Well – Thank you for ruining the running joke, but okay, um, that's what you millennials do. So I, I have something that you might not understand, not being a sports fan, but uh, for those who watch the, I AFC, like sports games. Okay, yeah, sports games. I yeah. watch sports ball the balls, all the yeah, time. Yeah, sports ball. <laughs> so in the sports ball game on Sunday, uh, Tom, people who follow the NFL will know that Tom Brady's hand had stitches, and uh-huh. everyone wanted to know what happened. Well, my theory is that Gronk, who was on the anti Tide Pod consumption yeah. uh, advertisements got tired of not having something to put in his mouth uh-huh. and just took a bite of Tom Brady's hand. And that and that's what caused it. That might have been it. I, I I just think it's weird. Like, when I was a kid, there were all sorts of controversies about, like, when I was a kid, you could still get really, really realistic, like, cap guns and toy guns that looked like real guns and they didn't have, like, the, mm-hmm. the red plastic tip. <laughs> Safeties. And then it was when I was a teenager is when all the consumer product safety stuff really went nuts and, like, they got rid of... I mean, I guess you can still find them in a couple boutique places, but they got rid of candy cigarettes because they didn't want to encourage kids, right? My uh, neighborhood ice cream truck when I was a kid sold candy cigarettes. Um, But they're making a a slight comeback now. Are they? But it's like gag gift stores. Just like actual cigarettes are. (laughs) Um, But it's just weird that like, like, first of all, it turns out that more adults than young people are eating these Tide Pods. Which shows you That's that, that adolescence is continuing a good long way, and that um, and that Darwinian selection is a constant force in our lives. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, one last thing before we move to the uh, um, listener feedback portion of this uh, fully functional podcast, I was texting with Steve Hayes today, and um, what's amazing is that. You could still smell the chicken wings, even though it was over text. But <laughs> nice. wow. I asked him 
what happened to the Weekly Standard podcast? Not the Weekly Substandard, but the Weekly Standard, you know, the grown-up place. And because they, on my my podcast feed, they stop at December 22nd. And uh, Government shutdown. No. Oops. Steve says that once they saw that I was getting into this business, they decided they were just going to give up podcasts. And I said, that's fantastic. I'm going with that. And then he gave me some follow-up thing about how they're retooling and blah, 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 blah. And maybe it'll be back in February. I said, it's too late, dude. When you get something like this, you know, to paraphrase Manage Shot Liberty Valance, you podcast the legend. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, we've chased the weekly standard out of existence in this um, on this platform. And who knows who's next? So anyway, so we asked for feedback from a bunch of listeners, uh, on, both on the Twitter feed. What's our Twitter handle again? Jonah Remnant. That's right. And at our email address, which is theremnantpod at gmail.com. Right. And um, we got a lot of stuff, and we're just going to go through it. And um, I, Jack, can you attest for the listening audience that I have not been read any of these questions yet? I can. Okay. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a yes man. Um, <laughs> but how, it's sort of, we got a sort of a no true Scotsman problem now. But anyway, why don't we just get started? Uh, well, the first question actually comes from Mr. Pratt over here, which is, should we use a talking stick for this podcast? I guess it's too late since we haven't started with one yet, but... Um, no, but I, I have no problem with me having, like, one of those, like, extendo truncheons or billy club kind of things, and I can just sort of smack you. Or, oh. like, a taser would be cool. What about a talking martini? That could work. Yeah. That could work. There, we should figure out a way to incorporate more drinking yeah. into this, since that's one of my major hobbies. Uh, I wonder. Hmm. Maybe we can put out a call to listeners of this podcast to devise a drinking game for this podcast. That could work. Like every time I say "uh" that you fail to cut out, um, <laughs> you could drink. But then again, we'd have people falling over dead. <laughs> yeah, <across> the country. <laughs> yeah. Well, Darwinian selection. Yeah. Powerful force. I think remnant podcast bingo could work. Yeah. Where like every mention of Leo Strauss, you know, you gotta you, you gotta drink. I thought this was bingo still. <laughs> well, no, but like so bingo, but like you know, it's so it's a sip for one. Oh, for I another, see. Oh, you know, I see. Oh, that so you're just trying to reduce the amount of actual drinking slightly. So you only I'm trying can... to spread the arbitrage of the risk of of <laughs> alcohol poisoning a little bit, right? Okay. And so like you have to drink drink the whole beer if I say immunize the eschaton, right, okay. or something like yeah. that. What what's the worst drinking game you've ever played? Because I have a pretty good story. Uh, I've had some bad drinks. <laughs> I always hated that thumper thing, which only girls ever wanted to play in high school. And at some point, I'll bring in I, me and my friends. We completely geeked out in high school and came up with this very elaborate drinking contest rule mm -hmm. thing, which we then laminated because we knew we were going to spill all over <laughs> it. And I'll I'll bring it in at some point. Uh, just as long as my daughter never listens to this podcast. Uh, what's your favorite? What's worst? So the the worst decision I ever made related to a drinking game was looking up the rules for the drinking game watching Memento, mm -hmm. um, the Chris Nolan film, because it was literally every time there was a flashback, every time there was a tattoo, every time there was a mention of like, – and literally the entire movie was just – Flashbacks and the, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. the entire movie is that for those <laughs> So that was a fun night. Not a fun morning, but a fun night. You could do a, you know, if you did a shot every time Al Pacino drops an F-bomb in Scarface, you could kill yourself. Yeah, uh, unless you were watching it on cable. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. 
We talked. Have we talked about this on there? I believe we have spoken yeah. of this on this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So we don't have to go over about how this is. This whole country is one giant, one giant chicken waiting to be plucked. Okay. What else do you got? Well, I actually want to go straight to this one because I know that over the years there have been various controversies about Star Trek on National Review Online. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, so for that reason, this one leapt out at me. Political analysis of Star Trek is the Federation communist, a non-communist post-scarcity economy, a neoliberal empire. Interesting question. So, uh, I think you have to draw distinctions between uh, original Star Trek and the subsequent franchises. Um, and it is, in a lot of respect, I mean, like, in a lot of ways, it is, um, you can make a better case in some ways that it's sort of nice fascist, right? <laughs> At least the Federation is, because it's, it's organized on militaristic terms. Yeah. And there is this notion of everybody sort of achieving the perfect expression of their own and you know innate humanity and all of that but they're also not necessarily looking to conquer and destroy other um races which conflicts at least with the german variety of fascism i think the basic problem with coming up with too much political analysis of star trek is it is a post scarcity economy and you know once you have a replicator which can make anything right <laughs> Um, once you've got rid of the problem of travel, economics don't make a lot of sense because economics is basically the system of managing scarcity. And if you live in a post, and so I actually don't believe you can live in a post-scarcity society. And one of my problem, one of the things I like about Star Trek, and I think one of the things that was good about it was its optimistic vision of the future, right? Because a lot of sci-fi prior to that was either really socialist, like Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward and all that kind of thing. Or um, it was really dystopian. And this wasn't that. And I think, you know, I mean, Kirk was supposed to be like JFK. And, you know, one of the original conceptions of the of the series was, it was I think the phrase was wagon train in space. Wagon um, train to the stars. Wagon train to the stars. Um, I always liked the Mel Brooks thing of Jews in space. And... Um, it's at the very end of History of the World Part yeah, 1. Yeah, that was one of the promised uh, sequels, which you could argue that Spaceballs was kind of that in the a, end. a little bit, yeah. I mean, one of the things I always liked about it, and I remember Crowdhammer, I did a corner post on this years ago that Crowdhammer loved. I always loved the thought experiment of what happens if we encounter alien life and this giant ship comes to Earth and um, it opens up. And instead of the aliens from To Serve Man and Twilight Zone or the... The the what what's the catchphrase in in day or earth stood still oh baracta nico or something like that what if instead a bunch of orthodox Jews come out speaking Hebrew <sighs> and it turns out that there's some wildly advanced technologically advanced race of Jews just Jews the lost tribe the lost tribe and um, instead of them being like hawk people from um, Buck Rogers uh, they are uh, the Hawkmen are from Flash Gordon, not Buck Rogers, if that's what you were going for. The Gil Gerard? No, 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 no. Buck Rogers TV show with Dr. Theolopolis, the, 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 the pie plate uh, artificial intelligence that Twiggy carried around. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you. Yeah, yeah. There, there must be some genre there, There's the here. Flash Gordon Hawk people, but that's not who I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but the, you know my, which I've ranted about many times, written about many times, my whole thing about power corrupting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to get into Trump stuff. That's fine. But this this whole idea that people 
that when when Lord Acton wrote that letter, about, came up with that phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely, he was talking about what powerful people do to other – how they corrupt other people, how like intellectuals all of a sudden start making allowances for powerful people. You know, all of the useful idiots who li- love Stalin or love Castro or the Sean Penn types who suck up – to people like Hugo Chavez, it's that they, there's something about powerful people that makes them that makes other people bend or abandon their principles, and sort of like Jack and I, yeah, a little bit. And so, <laughs> what I like about the thought experiment is like to see everybody scramble for dear life to talk about Jews. I always loved the Jews. I mean, like poor friggin' Paul Nealon, right? Would just like have to run for covers because all of a sudden, like. The most powerful force in the universe is this planet of five billion Jews, and you know, and 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 Christians. Most Christians would come out pretty well in this equation, but yeah. Muslims would be have some problems in some parts of the world. Yeah, and I'm not saying that the Jews would conquer us or any of that kind of stuff. You know, maybe they would just, you know, maybe they're just here to buy wholesale or visit Israel. I don't, I don't know, but I just think it would be an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, two things. One, this idea of a lost Jewish tribe coming out of space, this sounds more like Battlestar Galactica than Star Trek to me. It does. I got off on a little tangent there. Okay. The, uh, on the, generally on the politics of Star Trek, just to finish it off, one of the reasons why there was a Star Trek ban in the corner, right, for, for people who don't know this, at nationalreview.com, I was the founding editor of National Review Online, and I was also the guy who came up with the idea for The Corner, this group blog that was once this really great sort of water cooler spot. By the way, I'm taking a drink for mentioning National Review Online. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> That's um, the game. And, um, uh, and part of the idea of, of NRO back then was to appeal to a different generation of conservatives. You know, National Review had acquired somewhat unfairly because Bill Buckley was a really fun, great guy. But it acquired a bit of a stodgy sort of reputation of sort of Latin puns and Chesterton quotes. And I wanted to sort of go a different way. And so I wanted to do a lot of pop culture. And I talked a lot about Star Trek. And it proved popular. And then people would get into fights about Star Trek. And then Catherine Lopez, who was always the den mother of National Review Online, would always come in and say she was banning. You know, she was like the, the parent who runs in and says, you kids keep it down in there. And tell us to stop talking about Star Trek. And, of course, no one would... We'd agree to it for like an hour, and then we'd go back to arguing about Star Trek. So. <laughs> and the the other thing about Jews in space is, aren't the the Ferengi like an increasingly less subtle like Jew substitute or analog in in the Star Trek universe? Well, um, there was a problem with that, right? And we could we could probably move on after this, but <laughs> um, uh, so one of the things I hated about the first couple seasons of Star Trek: Next Generation was. They basically, what they wanted to do was just sort of invert the original Star Trek, right? So instead of a sort of cowboy, shoot-from-the-hip captain like Captain Kirk, who was sort of a almost a Western-style sort of cowboy guy, they had this effete, British-accented <sighs> diplomat with a French name as the captain of the Enterprise, right? And they tried and failed in the first couple seasons to have um, the rule that you don't send the captain on away missions, right? That's supposed to be, you know, there are like a thousand people on the ship and why is the entire, you know, senior staff going on every mission? <laughs> I once wanted to do a, I thought it'd be a great Saturday Night Live skit to do. What if the writers of Star Trek wrote World War II? Oh. <laughs> right? And so you just have like Ike and Roosevelt 
and, and like Truman showing up like on the beaches of Normandy, plus two guys in like red sweaters who automatically die and like they would win everything, right? But so they they inverted all sorts of the things that were that were normal in Star Trek and tried to make it more like UN in space rather than America in space. And Ugh. so the villains that they tried to do were the Ferengi. And the Ferengi, for people who don't know, um, are very much like the Jewish stereotypes from eight, 19th century, very much looked like Nosferatu, right? And, and, and there was a standard sort of trope about – anti-Semitic trope about Jews being hook-nosed and feral and vampiric and that's what they looked like, right? And then the Ferengi, unlike the Klingons or the Romulans, weren't sort of Spartan militaristic socialists. They were instead hyper-capitalists. And, and, and it wasn't lost on anyone that this was bad. <laughs> and they also weren't compelling good villains, right? And so one of the things I always thought was sort of fascinating was how um, eventually they – because the fans I mean, didn't really like the Ferengi because they weren't compelling characters. Eventually, the writers of Star Trek The Next Generation – had to fall back on some more standard stereotypes about who the villains are, right? The Klingons were complicated, but they were basically militaristic marauders. And it wasn't until they came up with the Borg, who are the ultimate socialists and communists, right? Where everyone is assimilated into a collective unity. No one has an individual personality. And it wasn't until Deep Space Nine that anybody actually made the affirmative case for the nobility and morality of Ferengi capitalism, where, what's his name, Quark, has this one great little, you know, monologue where he says, hey, look, you guys had slavery in your past. You did all these terrible. We don't have any of that stuff. But uh, I think it was one of these things where they let the politics lead and the writing couldn't catch up until finally they actually realized they had to entertain people. Real quick, for those of us like me who are not, who like that whole thing just went over, like way over my head. Uh-huh. If I want to know more about Star Trek and get into it, where do I start? I just start from the beginning and beginning? watch right. through and... Don't um, don't watch a lot of Voyager, but we probably did too much. We probably lost a lot of listeners by starting with all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, Maybe I should have had you read me the questions beforehand. Uh, <laughs> well, this is proof then of the authenticity of your responses. Yes, this is a happening. Uh, okay. We we can at least transition from this to uh, pop culture more generally. A uh, lot, a couple of listeners wanted to know uh, what non-political shows and books and and things of that nature you're into these days. Well, as as you can attest, I've just finished having my nose and working on this book for the last 3 years. So, I haven't I haven't read any any fiction except one of my on break in Hawaii for the last 3 years. Before that, I generally like sort of uh you know, spy novel, Robert Ludlum kind of I like Harlan Coben. I like Brad Thor. I like that kind of stuff. Um, growing up, I was, I know this is going to shock a lot of listeners after the Star Trek conversation, <laughs> but I liked a lot of science fiction. I, uh, I really loved the Dune books when I was a kid. You know, of course, I liked Lord of the Rings. Um, I've even read non Dune Frank Herbert. Um, or, oh, okay. I thought um, you were going to say non Frank Herbert Dune, which is just as controversial. I've, tri- I've tried that and couldn't really get through it. <laughs> and, uh, in terms of TV and movies, I mean, I, I'm pretty omnivorous. My wife's out of town, so I'm, uh, 
I'm actually rewatching big chunks of The Sopranos right now. Um, I just I just got through it myself. Rewatched all six seasons. Um, and you agree that Ralphie? Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I okay. saw this on Twitter. I I didn't even know it was a debate. To be honest, yeah, I think Sonny Bunch thinks it was unclear. But then again, you can come up with only any wrong opinion yeah. just associated <laughs> with him. Um, I uh, um, I go to the movies a lot, but mostly with my daughter because it's something we do together and. Um, in terms of like serious fiction, um, it's been so long. You know, um, I really liked War and Peace, which I read a long time ago. I used to really like short stories. I like the digestibleness of them. I really like sci-fi short stories. Um, one of the things I read while I was gone was I can't, I can't remember what the name of it is, but the the guy who wrote the you know the movie Arrival. Came out. Yeah, Ted Chang, I think, is that. Yeah, guy? yeah. That I read his name. collection of short stories that that's from. I really liked it. But um, and of course, I used to read an enormous amount of comic books, but I don't really do that much anymore. And you know, I uh, I watch a lot of garbage TV and I watch a lot of good TV. So I mean, I, that is that. So, are you ready for what happens to Jack and This Is Us? I've not watched oh, This Is Us. Okay. No. That's, um, I when I said garbage TV, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to go that far. Uh, oh, the other the other component of this question that I neglected was music. A couple of people also asked you about music that you like listening to. Most of the music I listen to, these my wife's much more into music. She's a huge Elvis Costello geek and all that kind of stuff. I actually got her for her birthday a couple of years ago. A um, I found one on eBay, a uh, the display gold record for a, a Elvis Costello album from England. Um, wow. It was actually affordable. I grew up listening to a lot of Dire Straits, Kinks. I like the Jay Giles band. Um, the music I listen to now is The Who, obviously, all that stuff. But most of the music I listen to now is more like background noise, so I can tune out the guys arguing at my cigar shop while I, am, <laughs> um, while I try to write. But I like you know, Mumford & Sons. I like a lot of that folk stuff. Um, I've listened to the Hamilton soundtrack way too much in part because my daughter is so obsessed with it and got me on it. It is really good. It is good. Yeah, it is good. good. For a while, it was too distracting because you actually wanted to listen to the yeah. lyrics, you know. Um, but um, but I'm not a huge audiophile guy, you know. I like I like what I like. I do not care about these intense debates about whose B-side was better than, you know, whatever. And I just don't care. It was actually from an episode of Glop that I first heard anything off of the Hamilton soundtrack because – the episode where you guys first discussed Hamilton, they uh-huh. uh, your producer put in um, the song where King George sings about I can't remember the name of it, <coughs> but he sings about how he's going to make the Americans love uh-huh. yeah. love him again by by sending uh, ships of war at them. <laughs> Very neoconservative position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Anything else? Uh, yeah, lots of stuff. Now, a lot of people asked about certain stories that you've told in passing in the past, but. Uh, without much elaboration. So apparently your dog, or a, a past dog of yours, urinated on Christopher Hitchens' carpet. Is that true? That is true. <laughs> uh, how, did, how did that come about? So Cosmo the Wonder Dog, the greatest dog who ever lived, the dog who is in my Twitter my Twitter avatar, the one with the party hat, um, We used my wife and I used to live in the same building as the Hitchenses. And um, we had mutual friends and blah, 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 blah. And, but we were there for six months before... We ever got the schedules right to come over. And so Christopher, you know, we're not allowed to call him Chris, invited my wife and I to come up. He had this amazing apartment. I can tell this story now, right? 
that dinner was weird stuff. <laughs> but I'll, I'll get the dog part out of the way. The dog, Cosmo, was still a puppy back then, or puppy-ish. And uh, in the Hitchens' house, which was bananas, he understandably thought it was okay to pee on like the wall because the place was kind of crazy. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. I, I really liked Christopher Hitchens and, but it was a strange place. And the, he had this penthouse apartment. I assume the family still owns it. I hope they do. It's an amazing apartment. We get up, I bring a bottle of uh, Balvini single malt scotch, which I really like. If you're listening out there, you should advertise. And as sort of, you know, a housewarming kind of thing, they invited us to dinner. We're going to have uh, dinner with his brother who's coming in from England. And Well, I thought Peter and Christopher never spoke to each other. I think they, have a, they had an estranged relationship, but they were on good terms then anyway. And But he was really late. His plane was delayed. So Hitch comes out and he gives me a goblet sort of brandy snifter. That could have been a um, like a carnival fishbowl. I mean, just yeah. enormous, right? And gives my wife a aperitif little glass thing that was small enough to be a small Christmas tree ornament, and it was like just a very weird mismatch. And and we were it was and he poured us the scotch that we brought, which was not our plan, right? And he was drinking Johnny Walker and Seven Up. In a milk glass, and and my glass was f- pretty filthy. Um, it looked like some kid had been drinking milk out of it at a birthday party, um, at a pizza party. I mean, it was just like, and 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 Jessica's glass was this little tiny thing, and we couldn't figure out why I got the monster thing. And we're talking and just chatting and socializing. And fast forward, Hitch has now gone through several of these. You know, scotch and co- scotch and sodas, and they're generously poured scotch and sodas, and because we're waiting for the flight, we're waiting for his brother to show up. My wife and I probably worked through half of this bottle of Balvini, and he probably worked through a liter of Johnny Walker while I was there. <laughs> and so at one point, like when we're finally sitting down to dinner, I say to Hitch. You know, I'm embarrassed. I, I brought this as a gift. I mean, we drank half this scotch. He's like, oh, it's fine. I'd be drinking that too, but this is what I've been drinking all day. <laughs> and I've ne- like, my parents came from boozy journalist culture. My mom tells stories. My mom and my dad used to tell stories about, you know, uh, at the, you know, a typical lunch at the press club in the 1960s in Washington, <laughs> D.C., you'd have a couple martinis at the bar. Then you go and sit down, maybe have a third martini with lunch and then some wine or a beer. And then you go back to the office and work, right? <laughs> and my parents were blown away by how much Hitch drank. And the amazing thing is Hitch could have a night like – this was like a Tuesday night yeah. you know, that we were doing this. He could then, after drinking enough booze to kill me, which is a <laughs> lot of booze, right? He could go and sit down and bang out 5,000 words for Vanity Fair and it would all be unbelievably clean. He was one of the very few guys who had both an impeccable, photogra- almost photographic memory and who was also a very good writer. Usually they don't go hand in hand because part of good writing requires sort of having to sort of BS your way across some gaps. And he was this beautiful writer and he could write drunk, um, which was just this amazing gift. And so at some point in this process, 
Cosmo peed on the floor, and they were they were very cool about it. And um, <laughs> but that was among the least interesting things of the night. I mean, it was a it was a bananas night. And then, you know, next morning was Wednesday. I mean, this was not like some special thing or anything. He <laughs> it was could not just a Shakespearean festival. <laughs> and either and I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm speaking that much out of school about the drinking. His stories of his drinking, his heroic drinking. Are you know you can almost ask anybody who was around in the 1990s about that you know ask Labash about it sometime. My God, um, wow! That, those that would be it sounds like a dangerous pair. Those two, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to get between those two. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 Monster Zero versus Godzilla. <laughs> uh, speaking of your past, people want to know if there were. I think we've gone over your the, this particular portion of your biography in which you were in Prague, but. Only generally, like people want to know if there were any really exciting or dangerous stories of of daring do or or failure, I guess, in while you were in Prague. Um, I have many wonderful stories from Prague. Some of them are too long to do here, um, but since we're on booze, the topic I mean, like we're not we're not drunk as we record this. Yes, not this time. Um, although you guys do seem like you're getting a little loopy from the Tide Pods. I was in Prague. When they introduced, when they reintroduced Jägermeister as a big product, um, <laughs> see where this is going. And uh, so in the morning, I, I don't know where I was going, but I was walking across some big plot, the Old Town Square, and um, and it happened almost every weekend. There was they were introducing some Western or major product um, into Prague. So I was there in what ninety one, ninety something, like that. and um, uh, ninety one, I guess, and. Uh, and I didn't know what they were introducing, right? But they're building these stands up, you know, in, down, in, in Old Town Square where they're going to have a concert or a promotion or something. Very common to see that. And I'm walking across it and I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're bringing out. I come back about eight hours later and it was like, a, it was like the government shutdown. It was like a neutron bomb had gone off because there were all over the place. People passed out, lying on the little walls around the fountains or whatever, or just like – wallowing in their, I mean, like sort of like Steve Hayes on free wing night, just <laughs> wallowing in their own filth, right? In their, their, their crapulence. And, and amidst all of this, these dozen or so, like just passed out drunk dudes and other people staggering around were like 10 trillion little plastic cups like you get with a NyQuil bottle <laughs> because they were giving out free Jaeger in in Prague and like all these guys free booze and just went nuts and people <laughs> drank themselves as far as I could tell nearly to death. I did and I'll tell this story another time or you can remind me but it's just too long. The greatest road trip I ever did in my entire life. Bar none and I've done some really great road trips. Um me and the former city manager of St. Cloud, Florida, <laughs> who I didn't know that well at the time, took a 36-hour train ride from Prague to Istanbul. And wow. along the way, it was like a whole sitcom crammed, like season crammed into one train ride. Along the way, we befriended some other like uh, traveler guys, one Pakistani guy who had been in, it was very mysterious, had been in Europe for like a year, quote, selling his goods. We have no idea what that meant. And he was heading back home and he had to get to Istanbul to get to Egypt to get to you know, Karachi or something. And a couple British kids who were at university and one guy who wanted to get to Syria. And one story is that we get off. So we take this train ride. We spent a half day in, in, uh, in 
was it Belgrade during the war, which was very World War One-ish, dudes with head bandages and and in these sort of Soviet style uniforms on the train station, chain smoking cigarettes, guys on stretchers around. It was really cool. We spent the day walking around in Belgrade, and then we finally get to Istanbul, and the Pakistani guy tells us that he's got a great deal on a hotel. And this is like, you know, that story I tell about my dad where when I was seven years old, it's in the eulogy that you can find on the web if you search for the word hop, the phrase hop bird. When I was like six or seven years old, my dad and I were walking to get locks and bagels on Sunday morning as per tradition. And my dad holding my hand stops dead in his tracks, squeezes my hand and says, Jonah, if you were ever arrested in a South American country, say to the officer, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, is there any way I can pay the fine right here? Because you don't want to go down to the jailhouse. And I'm like, okay, daddy. And um, I've given similar advice to my daughter that if an itinerant, sketchy, Pakistani uh, peddler that you meet on a train tells you he's got a great deal in a hotel, don't follow up on it. (laughs) So we go through, these five of us, we go through the streets of, of... of of Istanbul and it's just so different from what Prague is right I mean it's bursting with commerce and you know happy people and tourists and all this anyway we go through these side streets and we see all this crazy stuff it's my first time in anything like the Middle East and like where is this guy taking us you know we haven't bathed in two days and we've been on a train and we were chased off we were at one point and and in in somewhere in Yugoslavia uh 500 gypsies were chased off our train at gunpoint, and we don't know if they were killed in the wood. I mean, all this crazy stuff, right? We just we want to have a drink and go to bed, and we get to this really grubby, horrible-looking building, and the Pakistani guy goes, and this guy, this Turkish guy, comes out of the building and he starts talking to the Pakistani guy. I don't know in what language, and we're standing out there, just drenched in sweat and and stinking and tired. And they're haggling. Haggling is a big thing in this part of the mm-hmm. world. Forever. And finally, I'm like, dude, what is the controversy? And it turns out that the last time the Pakistani guy stayed there, he had only paid um, $1.60 a night. And this guy wanted to charge us something like two fifty a night. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I'll pay it. Come on. Let's just go inside. We get upstairs. We go we get up there. and turn, We get the top. We get this room on the top floor. Five of us have to sleep in there. One of the British guys, who's a big traveler, explains to us this trick about taking a clean T-shirt and putting it over, using it as a pillowcase to keep from getting lice. And I look up at the big, there's a big bay window kind of thing. And I notice there's just enormous brown sort of grease stain coming all the way in. turns out that the guys selling fried fish are right below the window. And during the day, mm. the greasy fish smoke rolls up and just comes into the room. <laughs> And, um, and of course, all Turkish toilets, which is just, you know, it's like a, it's a hole in the floor. And uh, the next night, me and the former city manager of St. Cloud were like, we're going to splurge. We're going to go find a better hotel. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, that, that, there were a lot of wild stories from that trip. Well. Uh, you get what you asked for. Yeah, that's true. Uh, now seems like a good time, so I'll, I'll cop to is some. Is there any substance that we need to talk about But no? Do you want to? There are a couple of people are asking you are asking you to do rank punditry. Do you that most of the rank punditry that you are being asked to do 
pertains to what you think the future of the Republican Party looks like after Trump. Do you wish to go here or do you wish to decline? I wish to decline. I'm going to use one of my uh, lifelines and decline to do rank punditry on this episode of the the podcast. There will be plenty of opportunities for that in the future. We just did that one with Kristen Soltis-Anderson about the future of the party and and millennials. I mean, I I will note that some crazy data came out, like 84 percent. 82. 82 percent of 18 to 24-year-olds want to see Republicans want to see Donald Trump primaried in 2020 and a clear majority of young conservatives, young Republicans want to see um, him primaried. The only people who don't want to see him primaried are over the age of 65. That should tell you a little bit about the future of the Republican Party, but <laughs> let's not get dragged too much into the punditry. Okay, well then, here I'll cop to some more uh, pre-show preparation because uh-huh. we were discussing, you mentioned something about Marion Barry being shot or a Marion Barry shooter? Okay, no. So not he wasn't shot. And I, I kept waiting. This is why, because we were talking about booze before, I kept waiting for you to ask me about the Marion Barry shooter thing. And well, it's, I, a, it's a shot. It's a drink. Oh, yes. okay. I'm I, not, we, we, we do not traffic and talk about assassinations of anybody or anything like oh, that. Oh, okay. So, yeah. uh, so, that makes a little more sense why I wouldn't have heard about that. Okay, so I was in Washington, D.C. in the 90s when Marion Barry... Um, was in jail, right? I mean, I got here before, while he was mayor. And, no, no, I got in here where I, I guess I came here when he was when he was sentenced to jail. I can't remember what the timing was, but anyway, I was also here when he got out, right? And for those of you who don't know about DC politics, the reason he won re-election, the key thing was he campaigned in Lorton, which is no longer there, but which is the local prison, <laughs> and he would tell these guys in the prison, "You'll get more conjugal visits." You'll get better rations at the canteen, whatever, if you get your families to vote for me, right? And he was a big, and I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing prison reform or anything. Yeah. I've come around on a lot of that kind of stuff. But anyway, one night, me and a buddy of mine, Scott McLucas, and another guy, Tommy Louderback, we we're at the Big Hunt, which is still here. Yes. Right? It's a bar on a Connecticut, fine establishment. a fine establishment, and uh, um, where lots of mistakes have been made yes. over the years. <laughs> and um, we're at the bar. On election night, which is the primary night in D.C., because whoever wins the Democratic primary wins. And there's a guy on the floor of Barry Victory headquarters before the election's announced saying how it's a raucous night here at Barry headquarters. There's an enormous turnout from the entire Barry coalition, including a huge turnout from the ex-offender community. (laughs) And... Which is another word for criminals, yeah. right? And so, again, I was younger and more hawkish on law and order and all that. And so we decided, and for those of you who don't know, like, Marion Barry is a, was a very cynical politician who played all sorts of racial politics games and, and you know, embraced black power in the 60s and all that kind of stuff. And so we decided we needed to come up with a drink to commemorate the victory of Marion Barry, who had been in jail for, for smoking crack, among other things. And so we decided, I came up with the, um, with the tagline which was so black, not even the man can keep it down. And the ingredients were Jägermeister, Kahlua, bourbon, and Coke. All dark ingredients, right? And I'm not, I'm not I don't mean this to be racist. We just thought it was funny. Black guys at the bar thought it was funny. I still think it's funny. And it is a terrible, <laughs> terrible drink. But you were asking me about CPAC earlier, right? Yes. So... Bizarrely, I would write in the old Goldberg file. I would write. I told this story, and 
we were at some bar, you know, years later, right? I'm more of an adult then. And kids would come up to me and ask to buy me a drink. And I was like, you know, I'll be kicked out of my guild if I say no. But they're like, great, we're going to do Mary and Barry shots. <laughs> no, this is a novelty drink. This is like, you know, like crazy hot sauce that you use as a prank. It's not something you actually drink for fun. And um, it's a terrible, terrible shot. But I've yeah. been asked to drink Mary and Barry shots a half dozen times. And, of course, I do because, you know, it's who I am. It's how I roll. But, <laughs> um, but don't, kids, don't try it at home. It is the Tide Pod of, of novelty shots. shots. Well, I have. I want to get your opinion on this specialty drink from the news from the past couple of weeks. It was recommended by uh, Peter Suderman on Twitter. Um, he suggested a, a dark and stormy Daniels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be aged dark rum, homemade ginger syrup, bitters for the regrets, club soda, and a hint of Jack Daniels. I think that works. That yeah. sounds like a perfectly acceptable, acceptable drink. My friend Scott McLucas, he's going to hear about this from somebody he came up with a drink i got to find out the recipe i can't i know rumpelman's is in it and um it was actually a pretty good drink it was called the occupado <laughs> and the reason it was called the occupado is it, it's it smelled exactly like an airplane bathroom <laughs> i mean it was uncanny you could you could have people smell it and say what does this smell like and, I, and like god i know that smell and it's like Airplane bathroom. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. It, was, it didn't taste like that smell, but that weird mix of yeah. bacteria and disinfectant and that blue water kind of thing, you know, and so we call it the Occupado. So here's some podcast synergy. Have you ever had a uh, Beam Me Up Scotty? I have not. That's uh, Jim Beam, 7-Up, and Scotch. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crime. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, we're talking novelty drinks, so yeah. that, that exists, uh, but... It's great. I'm gonna. The next question I'm gonna ask is just wonderful. Given all this talk about drinking we've had, we actually. It turns out that we actually have listeners as young as high school. So kids don't do this at home. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, high, stick to your Tide Pods until you're 21. <laughs> yeah. So the the high school listener is at a Jesuit high school, and he wants to ask what you think about Catholic education at all levels. Are you a fan? I'm. I'm. Well, you're somewhat of a product of some Catholic. Oh, somewhat. Uh, yeah. I'll, like my, basically my entire life until college. Yeah. My wife is a product of a lot of Catholic education, uh, both in high school and she went to Marquette. Does Catholic homeschooling count? Um, you know, I, I can only get so deep in the weeds on some of this stuff. You know, <laughs> as an outsider, um, homeschooling is its own universe. Yeah. It's, and I learned a lot of that at Hillsdale. I mean, how <laughs> yeah. the, there's there are many rooms in the mansion of homeschool. Yes. Um, but. Uh, I, I mean, there's, this is one of the reasons why I think Jews and Catholics kind of get along in a lot of ways is because there's something very s- similar in the, the sort of tradition of reason, you know, the Thomistic stuff and the Jewish tradition, sort of the rabbinical Jewish Talmudic tradition about arguing and using reason to come to conclusions about things and in particular using reason to appeal to conscience and having a rightly formed conscience, you know. In this book that I have coming out, uh, which I can tell people the title now, it's The Suicide of the West. Feel free to pre-order it. There are very few uh, talks about Mary and Barry shots and that kind of thing in it. Um, <laughs> but the culture has turned so passionately towards authenticity, right, and this idea of the primacy of feelings. And pop culture is shot through with animism and romanticism and all of this kind of stuff. And um, one of the things I like about the Catholic tradition, as I understand it, 
is that authenticity is good and important and, and consulting your own conscience is good and important, but it has to be a rightly formed conscience, and that needs to be informed by sort of the wisdom of the past, of reasoning through things, of working through things. And so I like it. On the, on the flip side, I can't tell you how many Catholics I know who are so angry about Catholic education in America. I mean, I, I mean look, Catherine Lopez is one of my colleagues, and she's, you know, I mean, she's might, she might be more Catholic than the Pope. And, and I know so many people who refer to, like, Georgetown University as a formerly Catholic school. <laughs> and I don't want to get in the middle of those fights. That's, a, that's an inter-family fight that I can't get into. But I am, as anybody who read Tyranny of Clichés knows, I am a big, you know, for, for a pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I am a pretty robust defender of the better parts of the Catholic tradition. You know, there were some bad popes. Yes. We yeah. can say that. And... But I think, you know, Western civilization owns and owes, and I write about this in the book, an enormous debt to St. Augustine and to Christianity generally and to the, the Catholic tradition. I've, I think in Tyranny Clichés, I refer to the, you know, the left and progressives think the Catholic Church is a drag on civilizational progress. And I think it's much more like a sail, which yeah. has helped propel humanity out of the, the darkness. Well, as a homeschooled Catholic who uh -huh. uh, graduated from the Catholic University of America, I want to reaffirm and thank you for most of what you just said, especially the part about Georgetown. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were a Notre Dame guy. Well, my dad is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Subway alumni. <laughs> Another, I mean, the, the author of The Exorcist, who was a Georgetown alum, was convinced. He was also of the formerly Catholic Georgetown school. So, but anyway, so let's move on to some questions that... You are free. They're they're more lighthearted in nature, and you're as opposed to these really deep, <laughs> pressing ones about Star Trek and whatnot. But okay. Yeah. Um, and my dog peeing in interesting places. <laughs> that, that's that's dark. I should also admit, Cosmo the Wonder Dog, the greatest dog who ever lived, the former it dog of the American right, prior to the succession of of Jasper. One of the worst moments my wife ever experienced was she was at a dog park in Calarama and. A fat guy gets out of a van with a bunch of black dogs and like a tennis racket to hit the ball. Oh no! And Cosmo would run. Cosmo oddly just had a thing for heavy people. I don't quite understand why. <laughs> and ran up to say hello and be friends. And this fat guy leans over and pets Cosmo, and Cosmo wags and leans in. And as my wife walks up, she realizes it was Ted Kennedy. <laughs> and my wife called me, you know, like, you know, our, our, our kid had been arrested or something. Joan, I have to tell you something, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, go on. Wow, that's uh, like, why, why haven't I heard that story before? I, I can't, I, I don't tell you everything, Jack. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> what else did Ted, Ted Kennedy do? Anything? No, that's about it. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, I mean, then, you know, he drove the van into the Potomac and <laughs> killed all his dogs, you know. Uh, oh, you know man. why? Uh, you know why Rose Kennedy um, uh, had Ted Kennedy drive the hearse? Because he was so experienced at driving with dead people. Shh, no, uh, she wanted a burial at sea. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that's that's dark, but it's yeah. he doesn't deserve better. I mean, w one of the things that bummed me out about the Fukushima disaster was that ruined the joke that Ted Kennedy's car had killed more people than nuclear power. <laughs> uh, anyway, go on. Uh, so we have uh, a pesky 
listener question from the legions of the substandard who says that you're jealous of the weekly substandard or why and asks why you're so jealous which i i I question the premise of that question yeah it just sounds to me like really kind of sad projection i mean i will i I have a standing offer if vic mattis wants to sort of you know graduate to the big time you know and uh i would love to have him come do gene his gene shallot and, and you know impressions for us but uh yeah, I think we talk way too much about the Week of Center, which is a perfectly fine podcast for what it is. Yeah, yeah. So, well, here's a more serious question then: If you had to write your own erotic fan fiction, what would it be about? Uh, <laughs> Are you gonna pass on this one? Wait, wait, no. He could write a mime about. Oh yeah, let's do it. Let's do. Want to perform it? Want to improv perform it? Uh, we'll come back to that because there's, there's nothing but inappropriate jokes that come to mind <laughs> okay then so a slightly more serious question uh really yes one listener <laughs> is turning the tables on you uh-huh. wants to ask what you thought was the most interesting thing about dc when you came here the thing that surprised you the most oh the question that you've asked everyone you know that's an interesting one i mean again one of the reasons i keep asking is and i keep bringing up Yuval's answers because Yuval's answer is very similar to my own but which is that nobody knows what they're doing. I think the most surprising thing for me personally is that I ended up wanting to live here because when I, you know, there, it, it, there's a, you've probably met them. There's a standard kind of person in DC who spends all of their time bitching about how New York is much better. And, um, which is true. Although I think it's less true than it was 20 years ago. Uh, New York's gotten worse and DC's gotten better, but the thing is, New York is a 24-hour city, mm-hmm. and D.C. is at best, you know, a 12-hour city, maybe now a 14-hour city. You know, New York's competitors are London and Paris and and San Francisco, and not even L.A., because L.A. is not really a city. It's an extended parking lot with a sprawl. Sprawl, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I always planned on going back to New York. You know, I wasn't going to spend my life here. And it took me about 10 years um, and I always used to think it was hilarious that DC people would talk about this. You know, I, I think I've referred to this on the on the podcast before. You know, it's the it's like the great Cornell Harvard rivalry that everybody at Cornell knows about and nobody at Harvard does. <laughs> like New Yorkers don't spend any time talking about like how DC is better or we're better than DC. You know, but if you're into politics, if you're into sort of you know the, and I don't mean just sort of nuts and bolts politics, but if you're into sort of conversations about political things in the broader sense, it's just much easier to find people to have conversations with here. And the quality of life is better. And the cost of living, it's it's getting more expensive here, but it was better at the time. And um, New York is a fundamentally uncivilized place. I mean, I still love it, but I love it less and less every year. And uh, so the most surprising thing for me was that I ended up liking this place enough to spend basically my life here. Hmm. That's a good answer. And those are about all of the uh, non-ranked punditry questions we got. So okay. we need, to, But there is one issue we need to address, and it is that of music for this podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, we've gone through all of the uh, listener submissions that we got, what, last year, I guess? And we've though I we've chosen the ones we like the best, and we've cycled through them all, put them all in front of 
at least one episode. Uh, but now we're now we need to make up our minds about which one we're actually going to use, or whether we're just going to keep cycling, or what we're going to do. Yeah, I, I I don't have a great answer for this. You know, I I've told you the music I most want is the uh, theme music to Barney Miller, which I think is the greatest TV theme music. Although that's a that is a good bar argument. What what mm-hmm. sitcom had the best intro music? I mean, you can make a strong case for the Jeffersons. That's uh, an even stronger case, I would say, for the Andy Griffith Show. Andy Griffith Show is strong, strong. I not Mash, this... although although the Suicide Is Painless thing does fit with the book coming out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, um, I would actually really like to hear you guys. The cast of Glop talk about this question. I'm not sure if you have. I don't think we have. This is a um, this is a Glop topic. It is a pretty Glop um, topic. A uh, Glopic. It's a Glopic. I like <laughs> it. I'll bring that up with them. So I, I'm going to punt a little bit on the music question. I because I want this thing to still get weirder and you know I'm I'm tempted to sort of incorporate. I don't want to say no to the music because some of it I thought was really good, and I'm really flattered that people sent in music, and and I want to give them their props. And but I think we're just going to have to put a pin in this for a little while longer because, you know, I I really wouldn't mind if, you know, I mean, what are the rules? Can we can we just have you know Bill Murray's Watusi speech <laughs> at the beginning of the show if we only do it for thirty seconds or something like that? But um, I haven't been putting in more than 30 seconds of any, like, outside audio. Yeah, I just don't know what the fair use rules are. And plus, I am still agonizing. I have to get a new headshot for my book, for the book. Mm. And uh, that's taken a lot. That has been a very depressing process because accurate photography of what you look like at my age is, is a fairly depressing um, enterprise. <laughs> um, how many pounds is the camera adding now? Yeah, exactly. How many cameras is on me? <laughs> and, um <laughs> And so listeners will like this. So as people know, I hang out at this cigar shop called Signature Cigars on Wisconsin Avenue in D.C. And if you go there, you should say, I sent you. I'm not sure you'll get a discount or anything, but they think it's hilarious how many people I've I've ended up sending there. And we are going to do a special episode of this at the cigar shop one of these days. Um, They've agreed to do it. But anyway, uh, the guy who took my picture is this guy, TJ, who's this really wonderful guy and I had heard of, I've been friends with him for a while now, but I first heard about him at the cigar shop because on the wall there are all these like portraits of regulars, you know, with a, like smoking a cigar or exhaling smoke, whatever. And I'd been going there for a long time, and nobody, um, and I was like, when, how much money do I have to drop in this place before I get my picture on the wall? And they're like, and the owner of the place, this guy Granville, he's like, look, it's not, it's not me. There's this guy TJ who's like an amateur photographer, and he comes in and he takes people's pictures, and then he, you know, we put them up on the wall. And you just have to be here when TJ's here with his camera, or whatever. So like, I don't know, six months go by, and it's during the government shutdown of 2013, mm-hmm. right? And and TJ comes in, and he's a. Uh, um, turns out he's. Former Navy, knows everything you can think of about the Navy. Fascinating guy. I actually might just want to have him on as a straight-up guest by himself one time. And now he's a contractor guy who does consulting and whatnot. And and I was like, oh, I fin- it's finally nice to meet you. He had no idea who I was, right? And I was like, it's finally nice to meet you. You know, I've heard so much about you, TJ. And I was like, why are you here in the middle of the day? You must be a government worker, right? Figured he was furloughed or whatever like that. And he looks up at me, chomping on a cigar, and he goes, John? I was like, it's actually, it's Jonah. Goes, Jonah, you know what you get when you get uh, three government workers and three lesbians in a room? 
I, I don't I don't know, TJ. What 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 do you get? And he goes, You get six people who don't do dick. <laughs> and I'm like TJ, we're gonna get along just fine, you know. And I mean it was a little salty, but you know, um and I just thought it was hilarious that he felt free to talk that way about me. And anyway, he takes pictures and so he took a bunch of pictures of me yesterday and the publisher likes some of them and uh so we're gonna use one of those. But it's been it's been stressful having to like like first of all be a prima donna about mm-hmm. you know, yeah. your friggin' hair. Although as you can tell, I haven't not that much of one. Otherwise, I would have gotten a haircut. Or a pants today. <laughs> yeah, podcast. that's right. That's true. And so um, thinking about the music is just, it's too many choices. I feel like Robin Williams in Moscow on the Hudson when he finally goes to the supermarket. Um, <laughs> Will your publisher let you have a cigar in your photo for the book? I think my editor liked one of the ones with the cigar in it. Nice. I'm not sure my wife will. Ooh. Um, so we'll see how that goes. What, will, what would Freud think of that picture? <laughs> That's true. Well, the, the real irony is, is one of the first pieces I ever got published for the Wall Street Journal was a piece making fun of young conservatives after the 94, you know, after the contract with America Congress came in and Republicans took back Congress. There was this whole insipid conservatism is cool thing in Washington. And Ugh. Uh, lots of people. You know, we, we, we would not want that. We, we, don't, we don't. Well, it was, just, it was just like these kids, first of all, weren't conservatives and they weren't right. cool. But they thought if they smoked cigars and wore fedoras, it would it would do it. Oh, fedoras and um, only Indiana Jones should wear a fedora and uh, or or adorable old men, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, only two people. So I wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal, making fun of this whole cigar fad, and um, it got a lot of notice. And it was I still like it. You can I think you can find it on the web. It's called "Conservatives Don't Need No Stinking Badges," and. Uh, <laughs> And now I'm like the cigar guy, and I, I feel a little bit like a hypocrite. But then again, I'm like, this is this is 25 years and 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 more than 25 yeah. pounds later. So it's okay, Jonah. No one thinks you're cool, so you're safe. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Although at the American Enterprise Institute, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So we're going to get back on the music. If people have more music they want to send, they can. If they have strong feelings about this. Um, we'll figure out a way. I think we're going to, the, I'm going to have a personal Jonah Goldberg.com website somewhat sometime soon ish. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can put up a, a voting thing up there. Please keep sending your comments and suggestions, including, um, who else we should have on to remnantpod at gmail.com. Uh, remnant. What do you have? Against, uh. What do you have against articles, Jonah? Um, sort of, sort of like that great Simpsons where, um, sideshow Bob. Uh, is on trial and the prosecutor says why does it if you didn't try to kill bart simpson why do you have written on your chest <laughs> die bart die and sideshow bob says no 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 that's german for d bart d um, <laughs> so it's the remnant pot at gmail.com the remnant pot at gmail.com remnant jonah on twitter jonah remnant jonah remnant sorry i'm stupid and what else um, there's something else. Oh, for those of you who actually want highbrow, more serious conservatism than you got this week, or just more serious conversation than you got this week, the National Review Institute, of which I'm a fellow in addition to my status here at AEI, um, which is the sort of umbrella organization of National Review, is going to be doing a bunch of events around the country uh, commemorating, I shouldn't say celebrating, commemorating the 10th anniversary of William F. Buckley's death. 
And actually, I think a whole remnant on William F. Buckley could be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, mm, yes. Um, and the first one is in Palm Beach in Florida in uh, February. If you go to um, nrinstitute.org, you can get all the details. But it's on February 6th in Palm Beach, Florida. If you're down there, it promises to be great. I hear um, that uh, they may, that Rush Limbaugh may even be speaking at it because he was a friend of, of Bill's. Um, but Richard Lowry and all these guys are going to be there. I'm going to be doing one in New York later on. And if you can make it, it's great. Check out the website, nrinstitute.org. And and we had no advertiser this week, but if you were inclined to go to the Dollar Shave Club and order one of the packs, you know, or order some razors or the Paul Krugman columns, sorry, those are the butt wipes in case you didn't know, please use the password DINGO. Same thing if you're at tripping.com. Basically, anywhere you go, just put it in. And we'll just start <laughs> see this. See if it works. Yeah, see yeah. if it works. And we'll just start this sort of like in the world of marketing website, you know, disruptor products, everyone's just putting in dingo, like a prairie fire of, 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 of support for this podcast. That yeah. would be great. What I've wanted to ask you is how does Pippa feel about being left out of this? As long as she's got a tennis ball, she just doesn't care. Okay. Um, we could all live like that, really. Team Pippa partisans, on the other hand, are very um, upset yeah. about this. But yeah. that's, that's a subject for another day. Anyway, don't forget the slogan, the catchphrase. I know, but I was going to do a different one. Oh, okay. In the spirit, uh, we can cut out some of this. Sorry, keep it in. I don't, I, I don't care. Um, it's my choice, really. It really is. Um, and the, the problem is, listeners may not know this. I have never listened to a single one of these podcasts. <laughs> I've also, I also never watch myself on TV. I only very, I will reread stuff that I write. Um, it's somehow different, but I just don't like listening to my voice, and I certainly don't like seeing myself on TV. But at the beginning of the podcast, I made some reference to the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Yes. Yeah. Podcast of the Legend or something like that. I watched some of it this weekend. Great movie. Oh, yes. Um, it does suffer from the problem that no one is the right age. Oh. Um, you know, yeah. it's, sort of, it, it's a little bit like Bonanza where, like, Haas is five years younger than his dad. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have, like, John Wayne and, 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 and Jimmy Stewart just at implausible ages. You know, he's supposed to be fresh out of college, Jimmy Stewart. And, in Liberty Valance? In the beginning, yeah. When he gets there with, the, with his law books, he's a young man on the make. Oh. And, you know, <laughs> and, he, and he, you know, he looks like he should be in a Bartles and James commercial. But anyway, one of the most underappreciated lines in that movie is, Beer ain't drinking. And I just figured it kind of fits the theme of this pretty uh, alcoholic podcast this week. Anyway, please keep the feedback up. Please keep the reviews up. Please subscribe to the actual podcast and at iTunes or Podcruncher or Stitcher or any of those places. It's great if you listen to NR, but it, it doesn't get into the same sort of metrics. And it's very good for us if you subscribe outright. And it makes all of the right people envious and sad as evidenced by the fact that the Weekly Standard doesn't even do podcasting anymore. So thanks all for tuning in. I'm sorry we were so self-indulgent. And both of these guys are now dead. I guess they ate all their Tide Pods. Uh, see you next week. The man who shot Liberty Valen, he shot Liberty Valen, he was the bravest of them all.